All right. Well, if you've got your Bibles, let's go to James chapter 4. If you've been following along with us, we are in our uh, fall preaching series. Really, it's kind of just developed into a longer thing than I, even I had planned, but that's okay because uh, uh, what I love about James is that uh, he, he kind of just hits us right where we need to hear it. We've already talked about um, everything from persevering under trial to temptation and uh, sin into what real religion is and uh, we looked at favoritism. Last week we looked at uh, some really hard truths about faith without works that's dead uh, and how we sometimes are, are walking around with uh, uh, some dead faith. It's really kind of the meat and potatoes of James, all that he really talks to. And, uh, and here's why I know this, this series is so relevant and so needed is because, one, every week uh, I have people come up to me saying, man, that was really good. That was exactly what I needed. And they're not talking about me. They're not talking about my preaching style or anything. Like They're talking about the very words of scripture, right? They're talking about exactly what James says. Uh, James calls out our half-hearted devotion. He calls out our insecurities. He kind of confronts our, uh, our, our self-righteousness and makes us go a little introspective. It makes us kind of go a little deeper into ourselves. And all I get to do is just read it, right? If I told somebody, now James just preaches himself. All I have to do is just stand on stage and just read what he says. And uh, we can't read passages like uh, what we read last week talking about can such a faith save you and not do some real um, kind of inward work in our life and in our heart and really examine what we say we believe versus what we actually believe. The, the second reason why I know this is so relevant and real is because uh, ever since we started James, our internet has messed up. Um, and I don't, I'm not one to over-spiritualize things. I, I, don't, I try not to do that. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to overlook the fact that the message of James is so real and so, uh, I, I think, life-changing uh, that the enemy will do anything he can do to try to mess, mess that up. Uh, we had a week where we, we couldn't stream at all. Uh, we had another week where we streamed video, but the audio was, uh, was mute, and so I, we were all just up here like uh, puppets on the stage. Uh, we've had another week where I think it, it, nothing else worked again, and so I think maybe this week we're back up. Uh, and so if you've been trying to watch online, we're trying to get those things redone. And, and for the one that, uh, where there's no audio, uh, somebody suggested that I just come in and record what I think I said and it would be like an old 70s kung fu movie, and it'd be awesome. And so uh, maybe that'll happen. I don't know. Maybe not. So just know that I believe that uh, this message really is transformational. It transforms families and marriages. I believe it transforms culture and our world in a way that just really hits home with a, with a lot of us. And so I, I really love, if you haven't figured that out yet, I really love the book of James. And so uh, after this week, we've only got two weeks left. Uh, I know that, and I can say that definitively because I want to say a word about Thanksgiving, uh, and then, uh, then we're, we're into Christmas, and so uh, I've got to wrap this thing up. And so to do that, uh, we've got to skip some chunks of James. As much as I don't want to have to do that, we have to kind of uh, make the time and, and hit the high points. And so really what we're going to do this week is we're going to skip the entire chapter of th- chapter 3, okay? So if you have this, go back and read it because chapter 3 is really, really, I'm not skipping it because uh, it's not important, okay? It talks about things like we shouldn't presume to be teachers because teachers would be judged more strictly. And it kind of hits us on our pretentiousness, right? Kind of hits us right in the mouth. It talks about the tongue, and how it's a restless evil that no one can tame. It really, uh, it, it compares it to a rudder on a ship and a spark in a fire. Um, and, and really talks about how we speak to and speak about other people. 
and then it kind of wraps up that chapter talking about our self-righteous wisdom and compares that from the wisdom that is from heaven, which is pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. And so it really makes us kind of think, take a couple of steps back in our ego and our pride and our selfish pursuits and makes us refocus on uh, how are we really are seeking after Christ and what he wants for our life. Because really our whole goal should be that we just want to be a nobody that'll tell anybody about the uh, somebody who died for everybody, right? That's the whole point. And that's when we boil it down, you go, that's really, that's really easy right and and our wisdom just goes out the window because it doesn't matter it's all about the message of Christ and who he is and so even though we're going to press forward and I'm not going to preach those things I just did into about two minutes and so uh, I'm not going to go into all that just know you need to go back and read it because it's really really good this morning what we're going to hit is something that I believe is uh, is personal and collective. And, and what I mean by that is it's aimed at the body of the church, right? This, what we're going to read next is, is talking to the church itself. And it's real easy when we read passages of Scripture like this to want to point fingers at everybody else. But remember, you're part of the church too. And so if, if you're pointing your finger at somebody, most likely they're probably pointing it right back at you. And so when we read these things, don't, don't slough it off as, oh, well, that must be for somebody else. This is for all of us. If you've got your Bible, James chapter 4, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. It says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for today and thanks for just the truth of this word. And I pray that as we uh, get into it this morning that we would would do some inward work that we could kind of chip away at some of our own insecurities and some of our own uh, walls that we build up, and God, that we would be uh, broken before you this morning as we read um, how you intersect all those insecure places. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when we read this, we automatically know that we're talking about church people, right? <laughs> when we, what causes fights and quarrels among you, they go, man, this must be written straight to a Southern Baptist church. Uh, if you have a King James Version Bible, it has the word wars, right? That's a pretty strong word, something that we wouldn't really uh, maybe want to use in that place. But we've all got war stories about church. We could probably sit around and share for hours things about how, well, they replaced the carpet and everybody lost their Jesus, right? Or, or um, we started singing all those new worship songs and, and we, got a pa- we got a meeting with the pastor on Monday morning. We're not going to do that anymore. I've heard all of those, right? Listen to uh, this excerpt from a U.S. newspaper, Uh, objecting to the new trends in church music says this there are several reasons for opposing it one it's too new two it's often worldly and blasphemous the new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style because there are so many songs you can't learn them all puts too much of an emphasis on instrumental music rather than on godly lyrics This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along fine without it. It's a money-making scene. And some of the new music upstarts are lewd and loose. This was written by a pastor 
1723, <laughs> condemning Isaac Watts, the guy who wrote, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross, Joy to the World, and Our God, uh, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. So this, this war has been going on for a long time. <laughs> And, and I know like we could probably pick on a lot of other ones, but you guys get the gist, right? We, we, we have these things that roar within the church. And, and when we get sidetracked on chasing our own personal desires instead of the unified mission of the church, which should be reaching the loss with the gospel of Jesus, then, then we've really lost the whole point of what church is all about, right? When we, when we want things our way at the expense of other people, when we fight and we quarrel and we war within ourselves and we are so focused on creating or maintaining, quote unquote, our church, that, that fancy word is called myopacy, right? Be myopic means it's mine. I, I want it this way because that's the way I want it. When we do that, we miss the whole point of church. I mean, who wants to join a church like that? Who wants to even attend a church like that? And I believe when we act like that, the enemy has us exactly where he wants us as an ineffective and unattractive example of who Jesus is. Who wants to be a part of something that wars within itself? James says you kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. And you quarrel and fight. And we push back from that. We go, no, no, I, I would never kill and covet. I mean, maybe covet, but we would never kill, Right? Let's, let's, take a little, uh, let's take a little trip back in time a little bit. When Baptists first were um, recognized as a group, we were called Anabaptist, A-N-A-B-A-P-T-I-S-T. Uh, all, all one word. It just basically means um, one who baptizes again. Okay? This term came about after the Protestant Reformation, 1715, around this area, okay? Um, and, and it was a group of individuals who said, listen, if we read Scripture correctly, then, then we need to have a confession of faith and then be baptized. Baptism before we say what we believe really isn't much of anything. And so we have this split in church history over something that's called pedo-baptism, which is the baptism of infants, and credo baptism which is a baptism based off of a faith held you know a creed that we hold or profess okay and so a matter of fact what happens in, in 1529 this is actually I said 17 it's actually 1517 sorry um, in 1529 at the Diet of Spire uh, they they um, they announced and made this proclamation that any Anabaptist or rebaptized person of either sex should be put to death by either fire or sword or by any other means. We were fighting within ourselves. As believers, as Christians, we were fighting and, and declaring that Anabaptists should be put to death. I, I read this a few months ago. I shared it with our Wednesday night Bible study. Um, it says this, all told, this is out of a book, uh, finding the right hills to die on, <laughs> talking about what things that we should argue about and things that we should not argue about. It says this, all told, there were probably more Anabaptist martyrs in the 16th century than Christian martyrs in the first three centuries of the church. Let that sink in. 
more Christians were killed by each other over baptism during the Reformation than were killed by the Roman Empire over their faith in Christ. And I read that, and like I just put the book down. I thought, okay, this is an issue that's important. Baptism is important, obviously. But it's not dependent on your salvation, right? This is not one of those things that says if you don't, if you don't get baptized the right way, then you don't go to heaven. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that we're going to argue and fight about it to a point that we should kill each other over it. And the author of James is just saying, listen, we've, we quarrel and we fight, and we, we fight over things that, that are distracting us from a bigger picture. Let's take that to a little bit broader aspect down to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard it said that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, if anyone is angry with his brother, he will be subject to judgment. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, takes anger and equates it with murder. So, church, how many folks in this room have you murdered in your anger? How many times have we fought with each other? Listen, there are people who are in this room who go to church together that won't speak to each other. You sit on opposite sides of the room. You go in different doors so you don't have to confront each other. Something happened either years ago or even maybe even more recently. You've gotten your feelings hurt or maybe your kids have gotten into it or got, this is... Oh, we're in a small town. You dated each other in high school, and it ended bad. And never mind the fact that you're grandparents now, and you've been married for 50 years, but you're still mad at each other over stuff. And Jesus says, listen, that's equated to murder. And James says, we fight and we fuss with each other, and we're distracting it, and I'm not trying to minimize things that's happened. Listen, some of you have been hurt by each other, and we've made mistakes, and, and hopefully we've reconciled those mistakes. But most of the time, we stew, and we fight, and we fuss, and, and we do anything other than what Jesus says next in Matthew chapter 5. The next few verses says, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and remember that, that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. First go be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. Jesus says that we should not even come and gather in worship if we know that our brother has something against us. Not if we have something against them, but if we know that, that they're upset with us, we should leave our gifts here and we should go be reconciled first and come back. Don't come to church and for and fight and quarrel and fuss with each other. Don't come to church and try to worship knowing that there's some, something between you and another believer. This is not a get out of church free card. <laughs> some of you are like, okay, well then I'm not coming to church anymore because I'm not, that's not what he's saying. He says reconcile and then come back, right? We're not above this thought that James is presenting. We're in the thick of it, right? We have all these things that are happening relational in our life and sometimes there's these breaks in relationship and there's these fractures in relationship and James says you're an adulterous people because you fight and you quarrel and you fuss you kill and you covet and and then he says when you ask you ask with wrong motives so our question really is where's your heart this is really a heart 
issue. And I know I keep going back to King James, but this is really good because he just cuts this on a different level. King James Version says in, in verse 3, Ye ask, don't get lost in the yeast. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that, they may, that ye may consume it upon your own lusts. I, can't, I like the wording of that. That word amiss literally means improper, wrong, and miserable. You ask miserably. That's great. You ever ask God for something and try to dress it up? Make it sound a little more holy? God, if you'll get me out of this financial situation, I promise I'll give more money to the church. We ask things for our kids, not because we want what's truly uh, godly for their life, but we want them uh, to be popular and liked and envied and sought out. Even deeper, sometimes we want to live vicariously through our children. And so we ask God for them. It's, but it's for them. I'm praying for my kids. But really, it's a selfish want. We ask things for our families, things for our families, so that we can keep up with everybody else culturally around us. Like real talk, I'm just going to say this. There are some of us who are living outside of our means. We're living outside of our means, who own things that we can't afford and who spend money that we don't have, all to keep up with the desires of the world. We're trying to impress people. We're trying to try to put on a show. And we're trying to be something that we're really not. We're asking God to supply things because we're asking miserably. We want to spend on our own pleasures. See, the whole point of this passage is about selfishness. Selfishness within the church, selfishness with our desires and our motives and our requests to God. And when the church turns inward, then we've lost sight of the great commission to go and make disciples. It's hard to go when we're selfish. We can find every excuse in the book not to go when we're selfish. And James doesn't pull any punches. He, he says this in verse 4, you adulterous people, right? He uses that word. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you think that Scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Adulterous people. And I know you got to be thinking, like, surely there's some, like, really incredible, hard-hitting, not as combative meaning behind that phrase. Here's what it means. Ready? It means adulterous people. It means adulterer. It means someone who's professed an undying, never-ending, holy love for someone and who has thrown all that away at the pursuit of something or someone else. And James says, you can say you love God, and you can say you're in right relationship with him, and you can say that he is Savior and Lord of your life, and you can say that he is most important, but you're an adulterer if you're making other things more important than him. He's saying, listen, if you've redirected your love that should be only for him to a pursuit of what the world says that you should want or maybe your own selfish desires, 
then you're an adulterer. And if you've been here for long enough, then, then you should, all these alarm bells should be going off that we talked about in the very, I think, the second week in James. When James says in James chapter 1, verse 14, each one is tempted by his own evil desire. He's dragged away, enticed, and then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to death. Or sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. See, this, this selfish desire that takes precedent over God leads to death. James says you're no different than a husband or wife that's cheated on their spouse. Your desire to keep up with what the world says is important has set you at odds with what God says is important. You can't have both. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Being in the world and being consumed with the world and wanting the things that the world says are most important and, and wanting all the things that the world says you should chase after and all the things that you said this is most important in our lives, this is at odds with God. You can't just continue to chase after this, this, uh, this image of a God that you've made up and not really seek out who God really is. We've got to stop giving into the lie that there's a comfortable middle ground of, of spiritual apathy and spiritual involvement. We've got to stop living life with one foot in and one foot out. We've got to stop believing that we can claim all the right faith things and never really live any of those things out. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, if you're not with me, you're against me, Right? James is calling us as the church, as individuals that make up the church, to stop redirecting uh, our love for God into other things, stop riding the fence of indifference and apathy, and, and either live for him or don't. He's essentially saying the same thing that John wrote in Romans, right? You're either lukewarm, you're either hot or cold, but this lukewarm stuff, God says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. And James is trying to say, hey, listen, quit living with one foot in and one foot out. Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. You can't have both. You can't say, oh, I love God, but I'm not going to live for him. I love God, but I'm, my life is not going to reflect it in any aspect at all. He says, either you do or you don't. Pick a side. And we've got too many people in our own church that, that want to live a, in a world that's, that's consumed by worldly things and claiming godly things. Wanting the things that the world says is most important, living in a way that, does, that just reflects culture and, and not their creator, allowing lives to revolve around and chasing after pleasures that we're miserably asking God for. Either you're a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. Then James asks in verse 5, do you think that spirit, Scripture says without reason that the Spirit he caused to live within us envies intensely? Other translations say it like this, that God jealously longs for the Spirit that he made to live in us. Or maybe that the Spirit he caused to live in us longs jealously. Do you know that the very first uh, attribute that God reveals about himself to us in Scripture is that he is a jealous God? Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 and 5, you guys recognize these verses. You shall have no other gods before me, right? This is the Ten Commandments. You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I 
the Lord your God am a jealous God. Seems like a pretty important aspect of who he is if that's how he defines himself. He, and listen, he is rightfully jealous, right? Well, we've talked about this in here before. If, if anything that comes out of your mouth after the phrase God is like is, is in every sense of the word heretical in nature. God is not like anything in all of creation. He is unlike everything else. And so when we say, oh, God is like this, no, he's not. He's not even close to like that. He is rightfully jealous because he is rightfully unique, right? He is, he is rightfully worthy of our worship and our praise. He is rightfully complete and righteously uh, unique and rightfully jealous. Everything that he is demands that he is jealous because he is unlike everything else. And so when God comes and he, he says, listen, how would you ever worship anything other than me? You should have no other gods before me. You should make no other idols that even represent, try to represent me. I've said it before that it is absolutely unimaginable to God that we would worship anything other than him. I mean, how could we? Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, do not worship any other gods for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. He desires to be at the top of our priorities. He desires to be at the top of our loves. He desires your best because he knows he deserves your best. And the spirit of God that lives within our hearts as believers jealously longs for devotion to him. Not to the world, not to our own selfishness, not to our own miserable requests to be fulfilled. If I never received another blessing from God, then he is still worthy of all my love and devotion. But if salvation were all that were offered, it would be enough for us to live our lives in complete love-filled devotion to him. This really points out the deepest areas of our spiritual lives. Are we seeking after Jesus or are we just seeking after the blessings that Jesus gives? James cuts us to the heart of our devotion. And aren't you thankful for verse 6? But he gives us more grace. <laughs> what would we do without grace? Where would we be without grace? So what do we do? We, as the adulterous, self-seeking, war-waging, miserably motivated, and enemy-classified, easily classified enemies of God. That's a good description of us. Adulterous, self-seeking, war-raging, miserably motivated, and easily classified enemies of God. Verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. It's pretty easy. I could probably just stop right there. I'm not going to, but we could stop right there and talk about it for a long time. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 
How do we fight the spiritual adultery? By submitting ourselves to God. By giving ourselves completely over to him. By by arranging ourselves and our wants and our desires and our requests under him. Right? The, Paul tells the church in Rome to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And when we offer ourselves, completely relinquishing control, our whole self, our whole body completely over to him, that is submitting to him. At the same time, we're supposed to resist the devil. But James says, because when we do, he will flee. Do you understand that you, as a believer, have the spirit of the living God dwelling in us, right? At whose name all things in heaven and on earth and under earth will bow and declare that Jesus is Lord. And we often believe that sin has too firm a hold on us, right? We're in too deep. We're bound too much to sin and to shame that sin brings. And that the enemy has control over the things in our life. And this verse in James chapter 4 verse 7 tells us that the enemy's not holding on to us. We're holding on to him. Resist him and he will flee. Let go of him and he will run away from you. So the question is, who's holding who? We're holding on to him. Because on some level, for some brief moment, sin is fun. Until it's not. I mean, let's be honest. Sin is fun until it's not. Until shame comes, until guilt comes, until your world comes crashing down. Because that's what sin does. It destroys things. It destroys families and marriages. It destroys uh, futures and, and witnesses. It destroys everything that it touches. And it may look really good for a while, but at some point... It's going to destroy. And that's when it stops being fun. When your world is broken and and laying in shambles. And you come running back to God going, how did I ever let this happen? And he says, because you made this thing more important than me. You adulterated your love for me. And you gave it to something else and not me. We can dress it up, right? We can, we, can, we can do all the things that we need to. We can be as disobedient as possible and make it sound so good, right? We're really good at making excuses for ourselves. We're really good at saying, well, I'm doing this. But the reason why is because James just tells us, if you just let go of all that and stop trying to hang on, stop trying to be friends with the world, that'll just run because the enemy can't stand in the presence of God. He runs, he flees from him. It says, wash your hands and purify your hearts. This is common repentance language in Scripture. Come broken to God, uh, done with the sin that we are wrapped up in. Come asking for forgiveness. Come seeking re- uh, restoration. Come and grieve and mourn and wail over sin. 
When's the last time we, we mourned over our sin and our disobedience? Most of the time, we mourn over getting caught and the consequences that come along as opposed to the actual sin that we were wrapped up in. James says, wash your hands, purify your hearts, grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. I, I struggled with these verses. I remember reading them probably for the first or second time in my life as a, as a, young, as a younger guy. I can say that as a younger guy. Um, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And I struggled because I thought, well, that's kind of the opposite of what God wants in our life. Like he wants us to be happy, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point of being in Christ, that we have salvation and we can be, you know, we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, right? But nowhere in scriptures does it say that God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. And so sometimes when we come broken and we drop our masks that we wear, and the facade that we hide behind and we get down real to ourselves with God, then we can be broken before him. And, the, and I talked about last week, the good old boy mentality gets brushed aside and, and we realize, man, we've, we really owe everything that we have to him. And we can drop the smiles and we can stop pretending and playing at church and we can really come broken and humble before God. That's where that laughter changes to mourning and that joy to gloom because we realize what we've done in our selfishness, in our miserable requests, and what we've put as more important than who God is. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You see how verse 7 through 10 uh, completely counteract the selfishness in verses 1 through 4? You know, it's hard to quarrel and fight and kill and covet and ask with wrong motives and choose the world over God when you're humble before him. When you come broken before him, when you realize that he is God and that you are not, when you realize in repentance you come and you, and you lay your sin at his feet and you ask for forgiveness, it's hard to be proud when you're broken. We want to fix our churches, humble ourselves before the Lord. You want to fix your marriages? Humble yourself before the Lord. You want to fix relationships within the church? Humble yourself before the Lord. You want to fix your priorities and your personal desires? Humble yourself. Make yourself nothing before Him. See, that's where we find grace mercy that's where we find forgiveness and compassion I read some quotes this past week talking about there's no smaller package than a man wrapped up in himself hmm. Charles Spurgeon says humility is to make a right estimate of oneself This is the opposite of selfishness. This is the opposite of assertion. This is the foundation of right relationship with God is when we come humbly before him. And so church, we're going we're gonna to wrap this thought up. It's simply this. 
as, as, a, as a church, and I'm not, I'm not talking global, I'm talking local, as Emmanuel Baptist, are, you, are we seeking after what God wants? Or are we seeking after what we want? Are we chasing after the message of Jesus being made known and made great? Or are we, are we chasing after my wants and my personal desires? See, what we did even last night falls into this. And it's so simple and it's so easy. How many people came up to me and, like, hear me, I, I got stuff ready. I, I pulled the grill to, to the fairground. And, and everybody just took over. We set up the tent, um, put Cokes on ice, and, and you, as a church, showed up. Uh, and, and just started working. Um, I, I turned around, and the grill was going. Guys were already starting to, to cook. Uh, Mr. Paul, uh, it, it's, a good, it's good to be a preacher when there's a grill around because uh, Mr. Paul will wink at you and, and bring you over and get you a good one. You know what I'm saying? Uh, whether that's a hot dog or a hamburger or a steak, it doesn't matter. It's just good to be around when your friend is grilling. Um, he, he toasted my, my hot dog bun on the grill. It's like, this is artisan quality food right now so and then I stood around I got to talk to people I talked to just a number of folks who came through the the line and and people who were genuinely grateful for us just offering hot dogs thank you guys so much for this thank you for the ministry of your church thank you for for and I was like I mean on one level we spent a couple hundred dollars on hot dogs but sometimes what that communicates to people is that the church is just there and that we want to be a part of their life and that we want to be a, a, an avenue of them to find something that, you know, well, if you're hungry, come here and we'll feed you. It meant, it meant really on the front end, not, not a whole lot to me. But when I was there and when I saw our church with their sleeves rolled up, just smiling and Squirting mustard on hot dogs. I thought, this is the picture of the church. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And, and we're not a church that fights and quarrels a lot, at all, at all. But what, what, what do we want to be the, the picture of Emmanuel? Do we want to be a, a wrapped up, myopic, my desire, come if you fit the mold kind of church? Or do we want to be a church that's willing to just get on our... Uh, get out on our, on our own and, and serve our community in the, in the most simple, basic way. That's, that's the picture of the church. I think if it came down to it, uh, Jesus would much rather grill hot dogs than come to church. <laughs> he would still come to church. That's not just excuse to not come. He would still come, but he would rather grill hot dogs. Church, that's, that's what we want to be. That's what our desire should be. So, if, if there's a quarrel within us, if there's a relationship that's maybe strained this morning, if it could be, listen, it could be friends, it could be lifelong friends, it could be distant family members because we got all that in here. It could be husband and wife. Then, then let's fix that and let's fix that today. James says you can't, you can't have this can't have this beef with each other because that's, that's the next step to start wanting something else and something, wanting something else and wanting something else. We also can't 
live like the world says to live and live like God says to live. That's probably the most of our struggles this morning, if we're honest. We can't, we can't chase after what the world says is right and good and chase after what God says is right and good because we're going to end up in two different spots. So wherever this hits this morning, don't miss. Come humbly and don't miss your opportunity to write some things today. Would you stand with me and, and bow your head? TJ's going to come and we're going to sing just a couple verses of a song. And this is, this is really for you to do whatever you need to do. If you need to talk to somebody about who Jesus is, if you need to talk to somebody about what being a church member is, if you need to talk to somebody about being baptized, because we talked about that briefly. I've never, I've never been baptized after my confession of faith. I'd love to talk to you about that. But I bet there's some relationships that need to be mended in here. I bet there's some hearts that need to be humbled in here. If you need somebody to talk to or pray with, I'll be here. Let's pray together and let's, let's humble ourselves before him. Father, we come to the, this morning as small as we can come. God, we come as humbly as possible, God, with our faces on the ground. And we say that we, number one, are not worthy of the salvation that you give us and the grace that you give. God, we, we are so thankful for the grace and the mercy that we find. And Father, we come today saying that there are some things that we need to straighten out within our own body, within our own church, within our own hearts. And so, Father, if there's relationships that need to be mended, I pray today's the day. God, if there's forgiveness that need to be extended, today is the day, God. If there's some redirection of our hearts, today is the day. God, help us stop living with one foot in and one foot out. That's not real devotion. And you have called us to this all or nothing life. And God, we want to give you all. Father, whatever it is this morning, However you're speaking to us, God, let us be obedient.